hot sexy pics stopped following me. Ah, <laughs> what a loss. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist. I'm Joseph Jarowski, here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character in a great story. Today we're talking about Esperanza Cordero from The House on Mango Street, a novel written in 1984 by Sandra Cisneros. All right. How are things? They're good. This is such a good book. <laughs> I agree. I um, Spoilers, everyone. We like this book a lot. I had forgotten how much I, I enjoyed this book. So, uh, when, so when was the first time you read this book? I read this in... Uh, an English class in my undergrad. I know for sure. I can't remember what the class was, but I remember reading it in undergrad. And then also in grad school, I did a comprehensive exam on Latino literature. And this was, of course, one of the texts that I read in that kind of uh, an exam. So uh, I actually, the first time that I read this book was when I taught it. <laughs> um <laughs> It somehow just a leap of faith that it was going to be worth teaching. Yeah, actually, I do. I tend to do that um, more than I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I do it a lot. Um, We've all done it. But uh, but yeah, I don't know how it's like sort of slipped through uh, my exams. But I never read it uh, in grad school or in my undergrad. And um, so I was teaching a Latin American like class, a Latin American culture class, and I thought, well, let's give it a shot. So we read it, and my students, it, like, the class was divided right in half. Like, half the class, it was the best book they'd ever read, and half of the class, it was the worst book they'd ever read. <laughs> so having said that, if you haven't read this book before, um, then you'll either love it or hate it, I think. <laughs> it's one of those texts. I, yeah, I definitely remember in the class, uh, my undergrad class, that there were some who just could not get into it, and some who who just adored it. Yeah, and I and I will say, I mean, uh, we spent like, you know, one class period talking about it. It's not long. It's it's really short. I read it today in like 2 hours. So, um so it's not I, I, anyway. I I just want to say at the outset, I am in no way an expert on this book. Um I think it's beautiful. It's tangentially related to uh, it's directly related to some things and tangentially related to lots of things, both in my professional and personal life. But uh, but anyway, I'm no expert. So, well, the quick version, just to find out if you're interested in this, it is about a young girl named Esperanza, and it's a little ambiguous how young it is. A coming of age story, so she's in that adolescent period between being a child and becoming an adult. And it just tracks some of her experiences in a se in, in series of short vignettes. Uh, I think the longest chapter is maybe only five pages long. And each chapter is kind of its own short story. So it's really hard to give a traditional um, synopsis of what the plot is. Because one chapter will be about a neighbor that she knows. And then another one will be something about her little sister. Uh, and then another will be about an experience she has playing a game in the street. And it just kind of cycles through these different experiences that all reveal some things about her experience uh, as, as a young uh, Latina girl and uh, living in a house on a street that's called Mango Street. So that's the short version. Uh, I don't know how, how much of the plot we'll be giving away in our more in-depth discussion, but a lot of the chapters we're, we'll probably be talking about in more depth. So if that sounds like it's interesting to you and you want to read it first, you can find a link uh, to go buy it on our website at protagonistpodcast.com. 
And it's also available on Amazon Kindle and I'm sure all the other ebook devices. You could find electronic copies of it as well. Can I ask you what uh, version of the book you're reading or you're I, referencing right now? It is a paperback, uh, not the 25th anniversary. I know there's a 25th anniversary. That's one that version. I have. Okay, it is not that one. I've I've heard that that one has an introduction that's really good and worth reading. Uh, yeah, I was just going to tell you. I think mine is better than yours, but it is. If it has that introduction, <laughs> it does, and it's beautiful. <laughs> I, and I actually would like to talk about a couple of things because I think that they're worth talking about that are in the. In- I, well, I haven't had a chance to read the introduction, so please. I I, I had the introduction. I had a, an ebook version. It's uh, so. beautiful. The it it was actually really nice, and I was really intrigued by it. Yeah. Well, well, enlighten me, Todd. What uh, what have we got in the intro? Well, so the intro starts, um, and it's there's this picture of of her. So Sandra Cisneros, um, sitting in the office that was her office when she wrote House on Mango Street, and um, she's sitting in front of this old typewriter, and then um, she writes this. So it starts, the young woman in this photograph and is me when I was writing House on Mango Street. She's in her office, a room that had probably been a child's bedroom. And then she goes through this, it's, uh, I don't know, how long is this intro? It's 20... Like a dozen pages. No, no, no. Like maybe two it's dozen like pages? It's like 20, yeah, like 27 pages long. So it is longer than any chapter in the book. Uh, far longer. Um, and she goes through this kind of... Um, Autobiography of how she came about the um, the thing. That, so there's one part that I, I think, I don't know, I think it's just worth reading because, um, because it is. So I'm going to read it. She says, um, so she's writing in this third person uh, about herself. She says, she wants to write stories that ignore borders between genres, between written and spoken, between highbrow literature and children's nursery rhymes, between New York and the imaginary village of Macondo. Uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. It's true, she wants the writers she admires to respect her work, but she also wants people who don't usually read books to enjoy those, these stories, too. She doesn't want to write a book that a reader won't understand and would feel ashamed for not understanding. I think you and I probably have both <laughs> had read plenty of those books. And, and then we had to pretend we understood them in our And everybody sort of like wears their black turtlenecks and sips whatever it is they're sipping and and like <laughs> pretends to understand stuff that's pretty just inc- makes obscure references that pretty incomprehensible yeah yeah w- would you each name one book like that for you oh nothing's come leaping to mind right now i'd have to <laughs> can't admit it i'd have to oh, oh there were those books and those essays uh i would have to go look at i read some crazy until... brazilian stuff I mean, Brazilian literature is, is like beautiful and awesome, but I read some pretty crazy stuff, like totally sleep deprived and um, in a huge, huge hurry. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, man, if anybody asked me a single question about this, I'm in big trouble. I, I remember some uh, discussions of like the theory, like, and I was like going to class, like I don't remember which ones, you know, Benjamin <laughs> and which ones, <laughs> you know, Levinas. I, I was just going to class like harried and uh, just had a, you know, I'd underlined a few key quotes that made sense to me that I could reference in the discussion. Oh, that's how all that's how all that stuff is. It's about yeah. finding the kernels of of good comprehensibility. Of goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So she talks about how she's just interested in writing um, something that's beautiful, beautiful little stories. Um, she says she thinks people who are busy working for a living deserve beautiful little stories because they don't have much time and are often tired. 
She has a mind of book that can be opened at any page and will still make sense to the reader who doesn't know what came before or comes after. She experiments creating a text that is succinct and flexible as poetry, snapping sentences into fragments so that the reader pauses, making each sentence serve her, and not the other way around, abandoning quotation marks to streamline the topography, make the page as simple and readable as possible so that the sentences are pliant as branches and can be read in more ways than one. Wow, you know what book that makes me think of? uh, The House on Mango Street. Exactly. That is exactly (laughs) the the book we're going to be talking about today. I think that she, I, I think she did a good job. I mean, there are, I did have students who read this book and they're like, I just didn't get it. But, um, anybody who's familiar in any way with Hispanic culture in the U S, um, can appreciate, I think what she's trying to do here and ultimately achieves, which is to write something that is both simple and accessible and also like tremendously deep. Yeah. And, and I mean that the, one of the very first things you read was about, you know, playing on the border, which is what so much of Latino literature, uh, and narrative does is about, you know, establishing the borders, transgressing them, exploring them, those sorts of things and all, all kinds of borders, not just, you know, physical land borders, but all, you know, borders of, of gender roles of, uh, you know, class and, and, uh, you know, the cultural borders that we build. Yeah. And she, and, and, she she writes one more thing that I think is worth mentioning here is that she's a committed writer and um, the work is it feels experimental in some ways. Um, it's this kind of prose poem or or a poetic prose, um, but but she's def- she I feel like she's just so committed to he, like humanity. And writing something, she thinks an awful lot about her readers. Um, And she says, uh, how can art make a difference in the world? This this was never asked at Iowa. So she was in this, um, in a a MFA program in Iowa, and she was supposed to be writing poems, and she just hated it. And so she would write these horrible poems that, that just meant nothing to her, and then she would go home and write House on Mango Street. Um, like in her spare time, knowing that she would get no credit for it. Um, so she says, should she be teaching? Uh, oh, and then she was teaching on the side, like to, to earn a little bit of money. Should she be teaching these students to write poetry when they need to know how to defend themselves from somebody beating them up? Can a memoir by Malcolm X or a novel by Garcia Marquez save them from the daily blows? And what about those who have such learning problems they can't even manage a book by Dr. Seuss, but can weave a spoken story so wondrous she wants to take notes? Should she give up writing and study something useful like medicine? How can she teach her students to take control of their own destiny? She loves these students. What should she be doing to save their lives? And and there is this like really emotional earnestness, like sense of earnestness about this book that to me is really refreshing. Um, so anyway, that's that's the gist of the uh, the introduction. So thank you for sharing. Um. So like I said, this is just, um, I don't know how many chapters there are. I probably should have counted dozens of, cha- of short chapters that are each their own perfectly self-contained story. Like it said in that introduction, you could, you could pick up on any of these and read it and be satisfied that you'd come to know uh, the person that she was writing about or understood the event that she was, she was telling about. And, and she has such um, 
a poetic way of writing that it, it's often not, you know, she doesn't tell you what uh, Esperanza is is uh, feeling, but but you you know it after you've read um, the the chapters and the and um, the way she puts together sentences reveals so much. But at the same time, there's this kind of interesting ambiguity about Esperanza and about some of the other characters that we meet, where it's it's hard to say how much we actually know um, about the concrete details that you're used to knowing when you're, when you're reading a narrative about these characters. Um, like I said, it's a coming of age novel, but it's hard to pin down what age Esperanza is. So, and she addresses that a little bit also in the introduction. This is sort of semi autobiographical. Uh, she did live in a house on Mango street for about a year when she was younger. Uh, but these are, these are fragments of stories from a hundred different people, uh, people that she knew, people that she grew up with, people that she taught in school, um, and she's, uh, some of the characters, there's like a one-to-one relationship, like so-and-so is so-and-so. And some of the characters are like three different people that she knew sort of braided together into one person. And so it's not, um, and there, and there really is no plot. It's not like you're reading this thinking, I wonder what will happen. It just, <laughs> yeah, they're just these, these really, uh, short vignettes that, I mean, it really reads like a book of poetry, as much as it does a novel, more than a, more than it does a novel. I yeah, think. more than a novel. It's hard to call this one a novel. Yeah, uh, I think at least I in, think she oh. played with some of the vignettes having plots. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the vignettes do. Others uh, are more like character sketches. Yeah, uh, but there are certainly events that get described and have the beginning, middle, and end um, that you you expect for a narrative. I mean, there is um, this kind of growth that happens and and. You know, so she has this desire for a house, and they move into the house on Mango Street, and then you kind of meet all these characters around her, and you do kind of have her curiosity um, about becoming an adult, um, which is explored in little things like her putting on high heel shoes uh, and her curiosity about boys. Um, but it, it's not—it's certainly not the traditional narrative flow that you get from a novel. Right. This is not The Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> No, in fact, um, it's, yeah, it's quite far from. (laughs) So how do we, how do we want to do this? You want to like go through and just mention like vignettes that stood out to you? Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. Like Uh, passages. I mean, I, I I know, I don't know. It could be pretty boring if we're just like going to read this book (laughs) cover to cover (laughs) to people, but I, but I really think that it's impossible to talk about this book without appreciating the way that Cisneros uses language. She is as good as uh, this book is as, as well-written as a book that I've read in quite some time. Yeah. There's a real mastery of language that's on display. Um, and it's not, I mean, as, as you said in the introduction, it's, it's different. It's not following all the grammatical rules. She doesn't use quotation marks. Um, the, she uses, uh, one sentence will be a fragment with only three words and the next might be a run on that's an entire paragraph long, but it's so beautiful to read. Uh, you hear the musicality of it as, as you're reading through it and yeah. they, they stick with you. Um, I, I guess one thing, one thought I had is maybe instead of just jumping from one vignette that stood out to another, what are a couple of themes that you saw that we can kind of look at as we're, as we do look at some of these individual vignettes? Um, well, one, the, the first thing that stands out to me when I read this is the language is absolutely stunning and I just can't like get over it. I know that I'm kind of being obsessive about it, but it is <laughs> so the metaphor the use of metaphor is like as good as I've read in a very, very, very long time. Um, 
and just like vignette after vignette after vignette, she creates these metaphors that are sometimes simple and sometimes like, pretty profound, but always just delightful. Um, so that's one thing that stands out to me start to finish is just yeah. her mastery over the language. Um, and and f- f- for that on its own, I think it just stands as like one of the great works. Um, yeah. And then the other thing, the other theme that stands out to me are um, these w- women, female characters that show up over and over and over again and they're... Um, uh, this feeling of entrapment that I think kind of runs throughout. Um, yeah, the, from emotional entrapment to literal entrapment, you know, right. being locked in their locked houses. In your house. And and the thing is, is that um, it's it's like I said at the beginning. If if you spend any time in you know hanging out with in the Hispanic culture in the U.S. Um, then you know that this is like no flight of fancy. I mean, all of this stuff is real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, another thing that stood out to me was um, something that I think everyone who's gone through adolescence can can understand is so much of her actions and the way she, resp- she responds, especially to adults. It, it's motivated by her her shame, whether it's earned shame or real shame. Yeah. You know. Th- a lot of it is the kind of thing that adults would wave off and say, don't worry about that. But when you're in that moment and you're a child or an adolescent and you're worried about how you're being perceived uh, and looked at and judged, even if no one really is doing those things, you know, no one really is judging you, you feel like everyone is. Um, <laughs> and that sense of shame, it, it just permeates a lot of the, these stories. I start to uh, circle every time ashamed or shame yeah. <laughs> was being used, and it shows up a lot uh, in this text. Um, even in the very first chapter, there's this one that I just, I could feel like I hurt for Esperanza. The the first chapter is called um, The House on Mango Street. And it begins saying, you know, we lived somewhere else first um, on Loomis. And it says, a nun from my school passed by and saw me playing out front. And she pointed, or she asked, where do you live? And I pointed up to the third floor of the place where we lived. And the nun just said, you live there. And then <laughs> the next paragraph is there. I had to look to where she pointed, the third floor, the paint peeling, wooden bars Papa had nailed on the window so we wouldn't fall out. You live there. The way she said it made me feel like nothing there. I lived there. I nodded. Um, and you just feel the shame that a kid can feel um, in, in that moment. And it made me think about the times that I, you know, I tell my own, you know, kids, oh, don't worry about it. But to them, you know, yeah. things are very real and... Uh, impactful to them. And as an adult, you can brush it off and say, it doesn't really matter. You know, all the things that, all the platitudes that we can say and that we tell ourselves, even though we also (laughs) can feel the same level of shame at times over things that we might be saying to ourselves don't really matter. Um, It just resonates so strongly in the way she writes about it. Yeah. It's, um, I love her description of the house in the first chapter. Um, she says, the house on Mango Street is not the way they told it all. It's small and red with tight steps in front and windows so small you'd think they were holding their breath. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yep. I have that that underlined as well. Yeah. So we, I guess we're, we're jumping in with her moving it now onto the house on Mango Street. And mm-hmm. she has uh, the, this desire for a home of her own, particularly after how embarrassed she feels having rented the third floor place and the way the nun talked about it. But you quickly get the sense that the house on Mango Street, I mean, from that description alone, it's it's not the home that she's really thinking of. And there's this hoping and planning that kind of uh, bubbles up 
occasionally in it of her talking about her future where she's going to have a house of her own and it's not going to be a house that she gets because she marries someone or it's not going to be a house that she shares with her family. She wants a house of her own that is a, just a house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's going to be for her. And I guess that's one of the, uh, the things that you find out about Esperanza is that she has this, this hopefulness uh, within her and she, and she is making these plans. Um, and she's, she's finding uh, ways even as, as this child, like she's exploring her writing, she's writing poetry and other things uh, as a means she hopes that she'll be able to, you know, earn enough and make her own way in the world. Yeah. And she does um, contrast with pretty much all of the other women in the, in the work. There are a lot of, there are a lot of women and girls in this work and they're all pretty distinct and she is the most distinct and she, yeah. she just is so conscious of this, uh, entrapment in which all of the women in her life find themselves. And she consistently kind of refuses to do it. I mean, her last name is Cordero, which means lamb. And, um, and she is, she does seem, she never comes across as like, I'm a strong woman and I'm going to change everything, you know, <laughs> like, uh-huh. like she comes across as very sort of meek. Um, she's taken advantage of several times. Um, once, especially, uh, at the fair, it's like, the, yeah, the really traumatic. Yeah. I mean, she's, 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 she's I mean, she's raped. She's sexually assaulted yeah, in some way. It's, she can't, she says, I can't write about it and you never know what it is, but it, it, it definitely, there was a sexual assault. That she writes. Near the she end. writes enough to know exactly what happened. I mean, to know what happened, and um, and so she's she seems like this. She is this combination of uh, sort of this meek little lamb, but who just consistently kind of doggedly refuses to fall into uh, the traps that the other women fall into, and and I think it's great, neat. And she sees them as traps, which you get the sense a lot of them, some of them do, but not all of them see themselves as trapped. Uh, and it seems like some of the other girls, especially the ones her age, uh, are looking forward to having the same kinds of lives that they see the older women around them having. Yeah, Sally. Poor mm-hmm. Sally. My goodness. Sally does not have a happy life at any point. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she has it rough at home, and her attempts to escape don't work, and then she try. you know, it's... Oh, where? How old is she when she gets married? So it says she, that she, Sally moved to another state uh, where it was where? legal to marry before eighth grade. So, and, and this is just to get away from her father, who is a religious hypocrite, essentially. Yeah. Um, so the father, you know, expects her to live the perfectly moral life, but you get the sense that he's probably an alcoholic, and he definitely hits her. You know that for sure, right? That he hits Sally um, in an attempt to control to control her. And at one point, Sally runs away to live with Esperanza, but then her dad comes back and says, this was the last time. I'm sorry I hit you. So sorry. I'm so sorry. Crying and crying. I'm so sorry. It won't ever happen again. And then and then it does, of course. And mm-hmm. and then Sally's effort to escape is to, is to go get married to this older guy. We don't know how old. It's one of the ambiguities. But uh, it says then she, you know, she's, you know, she tries to say that she has a great house and everything, but she's never allowed to leave it. Yeah, she can't have visitors. You know, it's she. She becomes uh, you know entrapped in in another way by another man. Um, 
one of the uh, other interesting things that we find out right away uh, when they move into the house on Mango Street is there's this girl on the street named Kathy uh, that she kind of befriends briefly, but Kathy the whole time is saying, I'm not going to be here for long. <laughs> We're going to move somewhere <laughs> where people like you aren't moving in, essentially. The, you know, the Latinos moving in is driving her family out. Right. Um, so, which there are a few, I mean, I mean, this is a, a classic book of Latina literature. Um, and it certainly has many references to, to Latino culture. Um, but there's, that's one of the fewer, uh, things that you see is those interactions, uh, in different cultural or, or racial groups. There's that one. And then there's one where she talks about how weird it is whenever, um, like white people come into the the street and they seem nervous because she's like what you know <laughs> why would anybody anybody be nervous um and oh i don't know where the quote is or but she says something like uh it's so weird to me that they'd be nervous here because because we're all just people you know we're normal people of course when it's brown all around i feel safe but if you put me anywhere else where there were other colors my my knees would start knocking together yeah, and we right roll away. we'd roll the windows right up and lock the doors and the exact same way that <laughs> you know she's she's laughing at the white people who are coming through the street are doing yeah it's um i work uh, pretty closely with a lot of hispanic people and we were visiting people in their homes yesterday and we were at like some pretty what i felt were like pretty sketchy places and i just uh as i was reading that today i thought they're just people you know <laughs> like it's it um it doesn't matter how steeped you are and stuff. I think, uh, Oh, somebody once told me like, we're all racist. Everybody's racist. You just, the, the issue isn't whether you're racist or not. It's what you're going to do with your racism and like how you're going to handle it. And, uh, and the, I was reminded of that as I, as I read that Esperanza talking about, like, I'm just so comfortable when I'm with my people and when, when I'm not, I'm not, and it, but at the same time, it surprises me that anybody could feel uncomfortable in my space, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just kind of want to prompt a little discussion comparing two of the things that you've talked about so far, which is like this moment of introspection where she acknowledges how someone else must be feeling and everything. And a lot of the rest of the book, when I was reading it, like, and this is going to sound really harsh and kind of negative, <laughs> but a lot of it, she seems kind of judgy, especially about all the other women who, as you said, were, were getting entrapped in different ways. And she's always saying, it's like, well, can't they see that this sucks? Like, why am I the only one with a brain who can see that, you know, that they're in cruddy situations and things like that. But in this scenario where she's talking about, you know, like the different races and, and the different neighborhoods, she very much acknowledges how someone must feel and how she feels in a different situation. But I feel like a lot of the rest of the time she doesn't acknowledge how other people might be thinking or feeling about their situations. Hmm. What do you think, Joseph? Um, I guess it, it varies from chapter to chapter, how much we get of her, of her own thoughts on it. So I, I didn't get her as being terribly judgy as just, She's, she's telling the story about this person that, you know, from her point of view, often there's not a whole lot of commentary being added, but when there is, I think she's more saying, I don't want to live that way. Not necessarily why, you know, 
um, like Sally's so dumb. To be living that way. I don't ever, I don't, I don't ever get the the impression that like, like oh Sally, she's so dumb. Like if she was just stronger, then she'd be out of this situation. Um, yeah, she wouldn't be beat by your dad. I don't think she says that. <laughs> you know, but herself. I, but I do think that there is this, um, a awareness this. of what's going on, an ability to kind of step slightly outside of of her society and say, I. Um, I recognize that the situation that these women are in is like, that's not what I want. Like that's, they are trapped and I don't want to be trapped. Um, and then B to, to sort of have the spine to say like, this will not happen. Like I am going to choose a different path. And she's going to escape mango street. Uh, she's going to get a home of her own and she is not going to be, uh, trapped by by a male figure, which is what she sees from so many around her. Right. Men not painted in a great light in this book. Yeah, I was no. just thinking about that. Like, <laughs> the only one who any gets men? a positive spin is her dad. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, you definitely get a sense of respect. I mean, he only really has one chapter that's about him. It's when he comes in and tells her that her grandfather's died. It's called Papa Who Wakes Up Tired in the Dark, and it's again she doesn't say explicitly what her feelings are about her dad. But when he, she says, uh, my papa, his thick hands and thick shoes, who wakes up tired in the dark, who combs his hair with water, drinks his coffee and is gone before we wake. Um, you know, she's saying, I, I think that tone for me carries with it, like respect. Like she understands that her dad works himself, you know, ragged for his family. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that phrase who, wakes up tired in the dark it says so much and is gone before we wake up so that that introduction is uh really great and really horrible because once you read it then it's hard to sort of separate what you read in the intro from what you read in the in the thing because she actually talks a lot about her dad in the introduction and um and so when you said i i think there's only like that, that that there's only one vignette about him i thought no she talks all about her dad. He's really, <laughs> he's really cool and kind of complex and extremely protective of her when she's younger, but then uh, just terribly proud of her when she gets older and gets an agent and is kind of making her own way in the world. And I thought, oh, that's the wrong story. <laughs> that's all from the introduction. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, you get like uh, the the cousin who steals <laughs> who steals the car. Yeah, get, uh, um, lots of men taking advantage of women in lots of horrible ways. Yeah, old men who are asking girls for kisses all the time. The young girls, like Esperanza's age, which again, we because she's peers with Sally, younger than eighth grade. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we could we can say that we're talking about preteen to mid teens, probably. Yeah, when you think. Yeah, but it's not always clear what chapter. Yeah, in some chapters, because she gets a job and it says it's one year before. She has to lie that she's one year older than she is to get the job. Right. Which, if I mean, I this was written in '86, so I don't know what the cutoff age was in '86. You know, if it was well, especially for that job, working as what like the uh, negative matcher at a Photoshop. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, but now like fifteen, sixteen is when you can get a job. So was she fourteen? Um, or was she was she younger and you know laws were different then I don't know for sure. Uh, there's one other uh, man that I think we should, or you know, male character that I think is worth talking about is um, Geraldo. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one, Geraldo? No less name. 
He's the one that has. He's a or, he's a brasero, he, and he he shows up and at this dance, and he starts dancing with this girl, right? And uh, and then he gets hit by a car, and he's an illegal immigrant, right? So, so it talks about how no one will ever know what happened to him. Back home, they'll just think he he went to America and stopped talking to them. Yeah. It's uh he he goes to the hospital, and they try to save him, and they can't, and he has like no ID, and and they said um, she says what does it matter? They never saw the kitchenettes. They never knew about the two room flats and sleeping rooms he rented. The weekly money orders sent home, the currency exchange. How could they? His name was Geraldo, and his home is in another country. The ones he left behind are far away. We'll wonder, shrug, remember, Geraldo. He went north. We never heard from him again. Like, man, break that's yeah, brutal. Breaks my heart. Yeah, I lived uh, in Mexico for a couple of years, and I worked with a lot of Mexicans, and there were a lot who would talk about their family in the north, you know, which was they're saying in in the U.S. And there were some that said, "Yeah, he went north, and we don't even know if he made it. We haven't heard from him in three years." Huh. Um, and they just they it's it's heartbreaking. And they don't know if he made it and is just, you know, said, I'm here and I'm going to live my own life. Or if he got hurt or, you know, something happened to him along the way, they they have no idea. Or if he, you know, lost the means to communicate back with them. Yeah. Breaks my heart. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, very few uh, male characters of any... <laughs> of any worth. Of any worth in this book, which is fine. I mean, we did read The Hobbit, so... <laughs> <laughs> This is our. This is making, in which there were no this female is us making up for reading the Hobbit. <laughs> for this it's the podcast. first novel we yeah. talked about. I had a, one one other like kind of general question, and I feel like maybe you guys should just kind of go like chapter name by chapter name and see if something sparks from that, because you're kind of all over the place. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's I, what the, the book is. The book is meant to be that you can just pick it yeah. up and jump right in. But I mean, for the listener's behalf really hard to follow <laughs> what's going on here. Um, but I was also kind of intrigued. Like there's times where she's very aware and times where she seems a little naive. And do you think she's writing it naive or like all of them are naive about the guy whose wife, no one can identify because she's only there for a few hours. And everyone describes uh, her she as a different, very different. Are you asking, are yeah. you asking, does, does the Sandra Cisneros that's writing the novel? No, 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 no. Is, is Esperanza describing it? Because it's all, you know, Esperanza's story. Does she get it that what's going on there? Or, or is she just writing it delicately for the reader to understand? Well, she, writes it in the, she writes it in the first person present tense. So uh, I think we're meant to believe that we're seeing this through the eyes of her as, she, it, as she's experiencing it. And I think... So I think she doesn't understand. I don't think she gets that, what's going on. Yeah. It's a, I mean, as a reader, you can understand that this is a man who works a lot of late nights and sometimes brings home a prostitute. Right. Uh, and everyone else, like the kids who don't understand prostitution at, you know, their age, they just think his, you know, oh, I saw, I did see him with a woman. It must be his wife. Yeah, his and wife is kid, blonde. And then the other kid's like, no, 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 no. I saw him with his wife. She's a, she's brunette. And they like, no, 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 no. I saw her. She's redheaded. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, that, that's part of her story. And I mean, this is, 
it, it permeates a lot of this again. I think I've said that permeates several times, but her kind of burgeoning understanding of sexuality is part of the story. And I think that vignette is in there to show that she doesn't understand it. Yeah. Um, that, you know, she kind of gets in, intrigued with guys looking at her in a different way when she dresses differently. Um, she, she doesn't really know what to do when she sees, um, Sally kind of flirting slash being taken advantage of by a couple of guys. Um, and, and then like Sally tells her not to worry about it. And that's one reason why she thinks, Oh, it must be kind of fun to, to kiss and stuff. And that's why she's so horrified with what happens at, at the carnival right. later on. I, um, I think the chapter about the high heels, Mm-hmm. It just stands out in my mind as so that these young girls and they're able to get cheap or free, I think free, like somebody gives them uh, high heels to wear and they put them on and start kind of practicing, prancing around and um, and the men uh, immediately take notice and start making comments and the girls are all very excited because look, all these boys are looking at us and talking about us and and then and then they towards after not very long uh some creepy guy tries to take advantage of one of them and they end up running away and taking off the high heels and hiding them under their beds or something and just saying like wow that was really terrifying and um and then the mom eventually like finds them and throws them out and she doesn't care. <laughs> She's like, fine. <laughs> good riddance. I never want to put those things on again. Um, but I, but just the the way that that chapter was put together, um, I <laughs> it'd be crazy for me to say like, I think that it really captures what a young woman feels. <laughs> what do I know about what a young woman feels? Um, but. But it, to borrow a Stephen Colbert term, it had the ring of truthiness. It about had it. the ring it of truthiness felt, about it. It yeah, felt true, it did feel true, even if it's not something that we <laughs> have experienced ourselves. Yeah. But there, I'll tell you what: I there was, are a lot of emotions in this novel that, um, even being like white male, you know, like <laughs> wasp, um, <laughs> that like really rang true to me when she has the job. And she's afraid to eat lunch because she she doesn't know if she can. She's not afraid. She oh, it's to sit down. She doesn't yeah, know if she can sit, sit down. down. She's afraid to sit down, and so she only sits down when the ladies that are next to her sit down. And then they start they start laughing at her, and they say, "You can sit down whenever you want. You don't have to sit down with us." And she's like, "Oh, I know, I know. I'm just you know whatever. I know." It's like I'm just I just wanted to sit when you wanted. I just to sit. wanted to sit when you wanted to sit. Like it's fun. It's such a like it's such a childish thing to do. Um, when a kid like falls down and then, and then says, that was fun. Like, I like doing that. And you're like, no, you don't just like, don't be, don't be, you're embarrassed. You're you're feeling embarrassed right now, but you're trying to cover it up. Yeah. And, um, and there was, this goes back to that feeling of shame that you felt before, but, um, man, adolescence is hard. And like living living in the the, school lunch one was another one. Um, Oh yeah. 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 Oh, and where she, in that, the part that stood out to me so much is when she's being scolded by the authority figure, you know, the, the, the school mistress the nun. and she says, isn't that, isn't that where you live? And it's not, but she just says yes to get yes. it over with. You know, she's, she's just, whatever you want to hear, I'm going to say it to get out of this uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And I, I just think their liminal spaces are interesting. So liminal spaces being these sort of in between 
and the, what she talks about in the in the introduction, right? So it's it's in between the U.S. and Mexico, and Spanish and English, and um, and sort of childhood and adulthood and um, liminal spaces are really, really interesting because all this transition is going on and contact and um, between transgression, different things. Yeah. But man, it is really, really, really hard. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and this book, I think captures the, that feeling of like, man, adolescence is hard. Like if I could just erase junior high from my life, except for that, that was when I met you. (laughs) Like, There's so much about junior high that I just wish I, I could not remember because it was really, really, really painful for me. And I think, uh, and she captures the pain without this book feeling depressing in any way. Like you can read it in two hours and you go, man, that was so beautiful and not like not depressing. Not like Kafka says, you know, like a book should be the axe for the frozen sea inside of us, like 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 a like a suicide. It doesn't feel like a suicide to me. It's just beautiful, and um, so yeah. As I say, um, so much of adolescence seems to be, at least from my memory and from talking with others and what I see portrayed, it's everyone is pretending to be someone they're not to impress people who aren't who they are. So horrible. <laughs> And and you think like if I act this way, this other person who who knows who they are and you know is really confident, they'll think I'm cool. It's popular people that are popular people that are so mean to each other and <laughs> so mean to everybody else, and then you just desperately want to join that and like that just that feeling of angst I could identify with so much, and it's nice to know that it's universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if if you want to read an angsty adolescent novel, you could read this, or you could go read Harry Potter book five, and you know you get the same. <laughs> yeah, but like this well, felt, I, I it expresses the same sentiment. But Harry Potter book five, as much as I love Harry Potter, is like That's, so angry, and that would be a drud like drudgery to get through some of it. And this one, I, I like it's light. This one is very light and quick and easy to consume, but it has, as you said at the beginning, it has a lot of depth to it. Yeah. Well, and even even if there's a part where you're like, this is really dense, it's only dense for like another three paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, it talks. You know, no, no, nothing's more than, I think, like eight or nine paragraphs long. Like four or five pages is the max. For you're like, chapters. wow, this is a really long chapter. This might take me like uh, three minutes to get through. <laughs> it's really, I, I think that it's it takes really true skill as a writer to be able to deal with stuff. I mean, like, think about what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody's, like, burgeoning s- sexuality. We're talking about um, rape and probably incest and certainly, like, a number of different forms of abuse, so child abuse and spouse abuse, um, both, like, physical and sexual and... Talking about uh, racial prejudices, anyway, gender prejudices, right? And 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 then like you finish it and you go, man, that was so beautiful, like so well done. And even if you feel sad, it's it's the sad that Sally Sparrow says in that like in uh, Doctor Who that like sad is happy for deep people. That's like that's what it feels <laughs> like. There, like there is this sense of kind of melancholy uh, throughout. But it's ultimately, I think, uplifting. Like Esperanza is about this book is about hope. In in like what really seems like a hopeless situation, 
and the introduction the end of the introduction she like she makes it and she she invites her mom to her house like in san antonio and it is awesome like i want that house it's beautiful it's a uh, bright yellow on the outside and bright purple on the inside and it's her space she has this beautiful office that she's built on the back and her mom comes her aging mother and they take this um caracol this uh spiral staircase up to the roof and they lay down next to each other and look up at the stars and she's like i did it <laughs> it's so beautiful and 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 she's she says you know like oh mom you should come back and we should have this uh we should have christmas here with like all the family and and then her mom passes away like and it never happens and but it's just really um reading that introduction and then reading through the novel and and at the end knowing that like she made it and that's a real accomplishment yeah um there's you talking about her mom maybe we should jump in and talk a little bit about what we learned about her mom which much like her dad i think it's mostly from one vignette in this case it's smart cookie yeah that's a page and a half (laughs) um but you learn so much about this woman in that in that page and a half maybe we should just jump around to like our favorite characters that stood out things that sure i mean this is a tough nut to crack as to how to talk about this as a cohesive narrative i will i I just want to say right now uh at the beginning of this we said man there's no way we're gonna go like over an hour with this and we are (laughs) (laughs) we're we're ways into it already yeah (laughs) so we we probably need to focus a little bit um uh, her mom um the the quote that stood out from that is her mom just all of a sudden like she's just having a, a kind of a calm day with her mom i think and then the mom says you know shame is a bad thing it keeps you down you want to know why i quit school because i didn't have nice clothes no clothes but i had brains yep she says disgusted stirring again i was a smart cookie then um and there's so much in there of again shame obviously you know she's talking about shame but the way that she uses the past tense saying i was a smart cookie then um, says something about how she views herself now and talking, uh, you know, it's the same kind of, uh, embarrassment that Esperanza is feeling about her clothes. You know, her mom was feeling that when she was her age. Yeah. I've got the, uh, ebook and for some reason it has crowdsourced some automatic notes. <laughs> okay. That is one of them. 523 highlighters on that passage of shame is a bad thing. <laughs> yep. Wow. I bet I don't even, I, I think I don't even have it highlighted. <laughs> well, it's just the people who actually marked it, you know, yeah. and, and I just stuck a bookmark there to talk about it here, but you, you marked it. I had like three or four actual bookmarks that I was like, I really hope they talk about this. Okay. Well, I have about uh, 15 of those bookmarks. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got a whole bunch of stars drawn in the corners of pages. Like, Oh, we should talk about this one. So, uh, do you want to, do you want to like go, go through really quickly? Yeah, let's. This is it. Needs to be quick hits because we're getting long. Okay, already. this is the lightning round. All right. Okay, I'm going through. You uh, say bums in the attic. Let's do that one. Okay. Okay, let's go. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's just run through like chapter by chapter. So hairs, nothing to say. Boys and girls. Okay. My name. I've, I've got something on. Boys okay, and what girls. do you want to say? <laughs> that was my first one, and that was the one that like got to me when she talks about like someday I'll have a best friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, okay, that is super universal. Like, I feel like everybody has that moment and like, it just really like nailed it for me. I was like, okay, 
that's me when I was like nine years old. Yeah, and the way she describes what a best friend is, it's someone I can tell my secrets to, one who will understand my jokes without my having to explain them, uh, them, and then until I find a best friend. Until then, I am a red balloon, a balloon tied to an anchor. Again, just the metaphor. But here, So uh, here's the thing about that that I thought was so interesting, is that who is this anchor is her sister, right? Like, yep. <laughs> in the end, um, she this sister comes back several different times throughout this story and Esperanza repeatedly stands up for her sister or um protects her in some way or defends what she just said defends what she just said she's like I know she's like no that makes sense I know that my sister I know that my sister doesn't really get this but I I'm just gonna like say that I get what she's saying because because she's my sister and uh man that's as much as I love my friends there are no friends uh, I have no better friends than people in my family, and I get the feeling that that's probably how Esperanza feels. Yeah. In the end, and the boys and girls, it's not just friends. She's really talking about siblings a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she says she says I'm a red balloon, a balloon tied to an anchor, and you can think of this like it feels like the anchor is holding her down. Like, oh, if I didn't have this anchor, I would be really be able to, you know, float. But um, but I think that the anchor is far more of like a grounding influence. Like, like she needs that anchor. Otherwise she right. didn't. So anyway, okay. great. Next line round. My name. <laughs> okay. We, of course we have to talk some about this. Esperanza, the opening line of this chapter in English, my name means hope in Spanish. It means too many letters. Just so much weight is carried in the, in those two sentences. Um, and she goes on to say like in Spanish, like Esperanza, it's not just, you know, the hopefulness, but it's also about enduring and waiting and this longing, um, can can all be loaded into that phrase <laughs> i love this uh at school they say my name funny as if the syllables were made out of tin and hurt the roof of your mouth but in spanish my name is made out of a softer something like silver not quite as thick as sister's name magdalena um that that calling the english like tin uh comes up again with uh the woman who comes from another country, probably Mexico, it doesn't say explicitly, um, and she never learns English, but her she, when she hears her three-year-old start to repeat a jingle from a, a commercial in English, um, it, it says that she hears her son speaking like tin or something. Mm-hmm. She does a lot of this... Um, oh my gosh, I just I forgot the word. What is it when you use one sense to describe another sense? It is called... <laughs> <laughs> I want to say synesthesia. She does this quite often where she uses one, like, yeah, like it sounds like tin or. Right, it, it can be a literary name, device, but it's also an actual psychological thing where some people can right. s- like smell color. It sounds like the color, it sounds like the color brown. Mm-hmm. And that somehow we know what that means, even though or we. It's like in uh, Rapunzel, he says, you know, the. All the men. I don't know why, but it just kind of smells brown. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, I was. I thought that smelling like brown was in uh, this, but it's actually entangled. So there we yep. go. <laughs> All right, Kathy, Queen of Cats, already talked about. Um, good day. Our good day. This is the bike one, right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm yeah, fine skipping it. Laughter. I'm yeah. okay. Uh, uh, this is it. That's another sister one. Just where she talks about what is the same and what is different about her and her sister, which is kind of interesting in there. Okay. Uh, junk store. Gills, Gills Furniture bought, bought and sold. That's where they go into the junk store, right? Yeah. Meme Ortiz. And I think that's a, a neutral male character. Yeah. It appears in there. Yeah, he sells them the uh, the music box. 
He no, he won't sell them the music box. Oh right, and he shows it. He shows it to them, and they want to buy it, even though it's a piece of junk. And he's like, no, this is not for sale. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we got Louis and his cousin and his other cousin. Mm -hmm. Well, they steal steals the car. Uh, Marin, this girl who comes from Puerto Rico. Those who don't, there was a woman. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Alicia, who sees mice, Darius and what, the clouds. What, I just want to say, uh, there was an old woman, and she had so many children, she didn't know what to do. This is one of the various ways that we see women being trapped. Right. Uh, women being trapped by their children and their role as primary nurturer for these children. Uh-huh. Um, often with the implication that husbands, not only are they working, but they're also sleeping around. Um, yeah. But ensuring that their wives don't sleep around. Um, so it's just one of the many ways that you see the female characters being trapped in this story. Okay. I want to go back to those who don't for a second. That one you did talk about already, which is the the neighborhood one. Almost that entire chapter oh, yeah. was it's, highlighted it's th- by it's three paragraphs by 500 long. some odd people. Yeah. It's three paragraphs long. That's where the uh, all brown, all around, we are safe uh, is the quote I was trying to remember. Watch us drive that into a neighborhood really of another like color a, on our knees. Go shakety shake, shakety shake, and our car windows get rolled up tight and our eyes look straight. Yeah, that is how it goes and goes. Yeah. I feel like that was one of the ones that's like, it's really more poetry than a story. Of yeah, some of them actually rhyme. I mean, she does. Mm-hmm. She does yeah. play with rhyme sometimes, but yeah. And so uh, there's a couple of where explicitly Esperanza is trying to be a poet. Right. Let's see, Alicia, who sees mice. I got nothing on that. Yeah. Darius in the clouds. Uh, the first paragraph of Darius in the clouds is beautiful. <laughs> oh, I guess uh, one the subtle thing that I caught in the Alicia who sees mice, right? Underline. Um, it says that she's afraid of nothing except four-legged fur and fathers. <laughs> Like that's the end of the of it. It's just oh, and fathers. Man. So yeah, yeah. Darius uh, in the clouds. You can never have too much sky. You can fall asleep and wake up drunk on sky. And sky can and keep is... you safe when you are sad. Here there is too much sadness and not enough sky. Butterflies too are few, and so are flowers and most things that are beautiful. Still, we take what we can get and make the best of it. <laughs> I, I had written down that this has the liminal space of idiocy and wisdom. Yeah, <laughs> like, that that the, when you're writing that line of of that, and and she talks a little about that. I like it. Okay, let's. Five hundred and twenty people agree with you. At least. <laughs> <laughs> we got ants more. Uh, that's where they talk about names, right? Like Eskimos have the thirty names for snow, which oh, isn't yeah, true, yeah. but mm-hmm. everyone has heard it. Um, when they get like a, a an insult battle, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's all about it starts labeling. Getting really uncomfortable. Yeah, it gets into labeling and um, yeah, just the your the, mama's the cruelty of children. Yeah, that should be the title. That I, should be the title. Or <laughs> your mama's frivolous. <laughs> your ugly mama's toes. Something really interesting just happened. So I changed like the size on my on my reader at some point, uh-huh. and so it wasn't when I read it. But now the last page of that chapter, it, it just says who's stupid, and then it says their four names: Rachel, oh. Lucy, Esperanza. Where they're they're running through like the the insults to each other. You know, that's stupid. But, who's stupid? Rachel, Lucy, Esperanza, and Nanny. Yeah, but I think the the youngest sister was like just chanting names. Yeah, yeah, and it got all spliced together. Like the, the conversation's braided in a way, right there. Mm-hmm. All right, the family of little feet. That's the high heels chapter. Yeah, I really about. like it. Rice sandwich, that's the school lunch, which is just so... Oh, I just feel so bad for her when I read that one. Yeah, that's hard. Um, chanclas. Oh, this is the one where she gets, like, a whole new outfit, and it's so beautiful, but all she can think about is that she's wearing old shoes uh-huh. that 
and that's all anyone's going to see is how scuffed up her shoes are. Oh. And she's embarrassed to go and stand up and, and, and dance. Like, a boy kind of wants to dance with her, but she's worried that she'll he'll see her shoes. This is my favorite male character. Uncle Nacho comes in. And, and he makes her dance. And he makes her dance, and she's just totally mortified because she's wearing these ugly shoes. And he says he doesn't even care. She talks about how big and heavy and swollen her feet feel. And he pulls her out, and everybody watches her. And and it's beautiful. Yep. All I, and, then, and then at the end, she everybody's clapping, and she just feels... Um, she's forgotten about the shoes. Proud, yeah. All right. Uh, hips. This <laughs> was... Uh, I think my favorite part of this is uh, they're like talking about why women get hips. Uh, and then th- she gives her reasoning and then she says, I'm the only one who can speak with any authority. I have science on my side. Um, <laughs> just uh, the confidence of truth that it gives her. Yeah. But, and uh, her science is like what? It's sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> At best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, first job. We talked about this. This is where she's all awkward and wanting to sit down. And then someone's an old man's nice to her and she thinks it's wonderful. Uh, then he grabs her face and kisses her. Darn it. Uh, Papa who wakes up tired in the dark. We talked about that one. Born bad. Born bad. This is where she has a lot of guilt because she makes fun of an, an aunt on the day that her aunt dies. Oh yeah. And she's been nice to her aunt. Like the whole time her aunt is ailing and sick and, um, she's been nice to her. And then, uh, the kids are playing a game where they're trying to imitate other people and make them guess who they're, they're being. And they start to imitate this frail and, um, dying woman. And that's the day that she dies. And so she says she was born bad and she's never going to get into heaven. Basically. (laughs) Okay. Elenita, cards, palm water. She goes to Uh, have her fortune told and... And uh, she doesn't like. She doesn't like what she says. You you have a home in the heart. You'll have a home in your heart. And she's like, I don't want a home in my heart. I want a real, I want a real home. home. <laughs> and the lady's like, Well, you uh, maybe come back some other time when the stars are more aligned or something. Yeah. There's there's also uh, a couple of like home remedies listed in here, which I had never heard of. Oh yeah. Um, if you have a headache, you r- rub a cold egg across your face. If you need yeah. to forget an old romance, take a chicken's foot, tie it with red string, spin it over your head three times, and then burn it. You haven't done that one, Andrew? Nope. That's <laughs> uh, a, not, not one I've this heard This is of. one that my wife needs because she's been having a hard time sleeping. Sleep next to a holy candle for seven days, then on the eighth day, spit. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, I love how there's no extra instruction beyond spit. Just, like, make sure you spit on, on that On the eighth, eighth day. day. Burn, this, burn the thing for seven days, and then spit on the eighth. You don't need it. Works, you guys. don't need it any works. more than that. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing. It probably does. <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know. My, well, like it, it'd be like a psychosomatic remedy. No, I mean that like, I, I've had too many experiences where my, uh, my like modern sophisticated, um, Anglo mind is like, this is so dumb. Uh, these people are so naive and they have no idea what they're doing. And this is all just like witchcraft. And then I watch this like amazing thing happen, and then I I'm like, there's no way that I can explain what just happened except that it did, and it was amazing, and that's <laughs> I don't know I I have I have a lot of respect for stuff. All right, my next bad romance. I will come to you guys. Find out where to get some chicken feet. Okay, I can tell you where. <laughs> I've eaten chicken feet before, so I know where to find some. 
Uh, Geraldo, no last name. Dark uh, we did that one. Uh, Edna's Ruthie. This is uh, a woman who's kind of, you can't tell. <laughs> uh, my note that I wrote at the top of the chapter was strange girl slash woman. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't quite tell. Marlon Brando. How, or how much she's winking. Or my left shoe. <laughs> she's uh, the mad woman in the attic. All right, uh, Earl of Tennessee, that is uh, the man with the prostitutes that we already talked about. Um, nope, I've lost my spot. Sire. That's, next. Uh, is that, that's Sire. the one that she kind of has a crush on, but she's not quite sure what a crush is, it seems mm-hmm. like. Everything is holding its breath inside me. Everything is waiting to explode like Christmas. I want to be all new and shiny. I want to sit out bad at night, a boy around my neck and the wind under my skirt. Not this way, every evening talking to the trees, leaning out my window, imagining what I can't see. Next chapter is Four Skinny Trees. I think that's probably not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like Four Skinny Trees a lot. Um, this idea of... The trees that grow deep and grow together. And they're finding strength in that. Yeah, this idea of like r- having really strong roots but reaching... you know, reaching, Intertwining your roots with others. And reaching for and the sky. Can, yeah, that's, I, think it's a, I think it, it, it is a good metaphor for her. Mm-hmm. It's like deeply rooted, but also like yearning for something more. Yeah. No speak English. I love that the the lady in no speak English only she only knows three phrases: he not here, no speak English, and holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this one is another one that's just heartbreaking to yeah. read. It's the woman who's brought by her husband. Her husband's been in the U.S. Uh, working, and he he brings her with their baby. And she just stays in the house, uh, trapped, it seems, not necessarily by her husband. Her husband wants her to come out, but she's trapped because she doesn't feel comfortable. She doesn't speak the language. Um, she wants to go back home. Um, and the the no-speak English, which is you know one of the only three phrases that she knows, she uses it whenever anyone tries to speak English to her. She'll say no-speak English, but then she also uses it as a as a lament or a command right. at the end when her child is singing uh, the language that sounds like tin, she just says to him, no speak English, no speak English. Um, and, you know, she just wants... And she weeps. Yeah. Um, and I've I've been in a foreign country where I don't speak the language and it can be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. Uh, yes. Uh, Rafaela, who drinks coconut and papaya juice on Tuesdays. This is uh, another woman, woman who's trapped. This, is, this, ser- this series of chapters, so you've got No Speak English, Rafaela, and then you get Sally. And Sally. Oh, and, and Sally's so sad. So Rafaela is actually locked in her house. Like yeah, She can't literally. leave, and she asks the kids to bring her juices. So she drops, she drops, she drops them money in a basket, and then they, they go and buy her juice at the store, and then they put it in, and she, she brings it up with a, with a clothesline. Yeah. And she's uh, apparently like young and beautiful, and she just has to stay in her house all the time because her husband's a piece of work. Uh, the Sally chapter. This is, I mean, we meet Sally several times, but this one has my favorite run-on sentence in this. Uh, we've already enjoyed a few sentence fragments, but the end <laughs> of the Sally chapter says, "I mean, she's saying, Sally, do you wish you could go somewhere else than you know the life that you're leading right now, basically?" And the last sentence is, "And no one could yell at you if they saw you out in the dark, leaning against a car, leaning against somebody, without someone thinking you are bad, without somebody saying it is wrong, without the whole world waiting for you to make a mistake. When all you wanted, all you wanted, Sally, was to love and to love and to love and to love." And no one could call that crazy. Uh, Sally breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, then we get Minerva, who writes poems. Minerva writes poems and is beaten by somebody. Right? Yeah, it is abused. Yeah. 
and and, and Esperanza feels like hopeless. I mean, help, helpless or mm-hmm. what? Yeah, you get. I mean, impotent, right? Like she's yeah. She, her friends comes over, and she's all black and blue. And Esperanza is just like, I don't even know what I can do. I don't. I don't know what to do. Bums in the attic. So she so she imagines that someday she'll have her house and she'll let all the bums uh, into it, and they'll be up in the attic. And, and people will come by and they'll hear floorboards squeaking and they'll say, "Do you have rats?" She's just bums, and, and she'll be happy about it. <laughs> we have bums. They'll say, "I'll be bums. happy." <laughs> yeah, beautiful and uh, cruel. Yeah. Well, the other thing about the bums in the attic, it talks about how the people who live in the nice houses on the on the hills, they don't even look down and see that there are bums below them. You know, yeah. it's getting into a lot of class issues. Uh, beautiful and cruel. This is where she talks about herself and that she thinks she's ugly. <laughs> and... And that her hair isn't as nice as her sister's. Um, but you, even though it's kind of sad and you, you obviously there's a lot of self, uh, deprecation to the point of, you know, self-flagellation that seems to be happening in the chapters. It ends on a note of strength because the last paragraph of this one is I have begun my own quiet war. Simple. Sure. I am one who leaves the table like a man without putting the chair back, putting back the chair or picking up the plate. Yeah, I think that she. I, I like this, this the quiet war. I think that that mm-hmm. describes really well what we've been. And it's after talking about we've had all this. this run of, you know, the trapped women. You're starting to see this, you know, the the iron spine that she really has, even right. though she hasn't given herself credit for it. Yep, you got smart uh, cookie. Smart cookie. That's the mom. We've already talked about that. What Sally said. We got into Sally several times. The Monkey Garden is an interesting one, but there's really not a whole lot of time left to cover it. Uh, Red Clowns is when she's taken advantage of at the fair. Linoleum Roses. Uh, this is where... Sally gets uh, married. Sally gets married. Three sisters. This is... Uh, it's kind of a... You know, the, a fantastic, almost... Uh, these three sisters tell her that, you know, she's... Essentially, they tell her she's going to leave, but she has to remember Mango Street and come back to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Those but, three sisters are kind of creepy. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, but three, you know, anytime you can't help but think of like the three fates or the three witches yeah. in Macbeth. You know, the the way they're written, I think, is supposed to have that kind of vaguely supernatural air to it, yeah. and like they're predicting her future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lisa and I taking. I on think talk, that, go ahead. That one has like the highest number of highlights. Is when you leave, you must remember, mm-hmm. and it's like five hundred and seventy-four. I and I don't quite understand why that particular passage has the most highlights out of all the passages that could have highlights. This whole book, I think is building towards her being able to leave. And this is saying it's going to happen. Um, But then it says that she's going to come back. She's a tree. I mean, that's her roots are all there. Like there's no way that this is, you know, even though she's saying this house isn't my house, it is, you know, Mango street is, is part of her that she's never going to be able to just cut out. She's not gonna be able to cut it off and leave. And some people do. I mean, there are lots of people who grow up in crummy situations and say, I'm out of here, and then they're done. And they don't want to, they don't want to think about it, they don't want to talk about it, and they never go back, and their family is messed up, and that's how it is. And, like, that was my childhood, but it's not my adulthood. And Sandra Cisneros, the writer, uh, never never let it go. Like, she could never let Mango Street go. She was there for one year, and... and it haunted her for a long time. And then she wrote this book and 
and that's like with her forever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I don't, I don't think that it's inevitable that she remembers, uh, but oh, how do I say this? Well, the next, the next chapter has the same thing. Alicia and I talking on in the steps, um, you know, it's, they're talking about, you know, dreaming of, of leaving and, and Esperanza says, this isn't my house and, you know, this isn't my street basically. And Alicia says, no, like it or not, you are Mango Street. Uh, and one day you'll come back to. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is Which it's I, not, I'm not inevitable that, as that anybody who leaves Mango Street, it's not inevitable that anybody who leaves Mango Street will come back, but it is inevitable that she will come back. And it's not that the coming back is be, is like falling back into the trap. It is... Uh, I mean, it's, it's like the return of the heroic journey. Yeah, absolutely. Return. Yeah. Yep. All right. A house of my own talks about the house that she wants to have. And then mango says goodbye sometimes. Um, and I guess, um, the, the final line is again, talking about this, you know, the, the journey away, but then the return, uh, they will not know I've gone away to come back for the ones I left behind for the ones who cannot out. Um, that's the last line. So it's just not, yeah, again, it's not coming back to be trapped. It's coming back for those who are trapped there. Uh, and do something for them. And what has she done for them? Uh, one thing that she's done is written this book for them. She's told their story. And in, yeah. in, in the introduction, she says, like, this book is for them. This is book is for people who it's written this way with these tiny, tiny little chapters because she knows she's writing for people who work all day long on their feet and they get home and they're totally exhausted and they, the only thing that they would have time for, if they have time for anything, would be to crack open this book and read a little vignette and feel some sense of compassion and um, that somebody has empathy for them and, and like, hope. And, and that's, that's, part, that's part of her <laughs> gift, right? Part of her gift. Yeah. To it's, that's the, uh, you know, people. why the characters name that, I think, as well. Yeah. Well, Todd, I think we, we found a way to crack it towards the end there. <laughs> but I don't know that there's much else we can say now. <laughs> I think we've done this, done it. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for join- joining us. Uh, and remember, you can subscribe to The Protagonist in iTunes. And we would also encourage you to leave a review there if you like what you hear. Uh, it really helps us out. You can find links to everything we've talked about in this episode, along with a list of all of our shows at protagonistpodcast.com. If you have suggestions of things you would like to hear us talk about or comments about the podcast, you can send us an email at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We are at protagonistpod. You can also find each of us on Twitter. There's at Todd K. Mack and at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Also check out our Facebook group called Protagonist Podcast Group. We love any comments and corrections or suggestions for characters we can discuss. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and another great story. So long. So long. So I have soundproofed my desk. With a very soft fleece blanket. Way to go. I... Can you hear the difference? <laughs> you would be the one to tell us if you can hear the difference, because you're the one that's putting it all together. I think... Uh, here, I'll throw a fleece blanket over my mic right now. You tell me if you can hear a difference. <laughs>